A few months ago, uh, Didi and I had uh, the great pleasure of visiting New Orleans for a Reconstructionist rabbinical college conference. And as long as we were in New Orleans, we figured we would take a break during part of the breaks of the conference and stroll along the streets of the French Quarter and act as best we could like tourists, because we were. So we had breakfast at Brennan's and beignets and coffee at Café du Monde, and we walked into a typical tourist shop filled with, you know, all kinds of New Orleans memorabilia, and of course they also had an entire wall of t-shirts with all kinds of stuff on them. Well, in less than about a minute, I heard Didi cry out, Oh my God! Which I thought meant she was preparing for high holidays, but instead, <laughs> Oh my God, this t-shirt is you! It's exactly you! So, of course, she bought it. <clears throat> okay, so here it is. I know you can't see it. So, since you're too far away to read what it says, this is what my lovely wife now calls me in a nutshell. It says, I don't have ADD, it's just that, oh look, a squirrel! <laughs> really? <clears throat> now how could anyone think that is funny? <laughs> or me? Chaim, did you get the email about, where'd he go? Look at the email about the... Never mind. Um, look, I know that uh, this is kind of a very short version of my own life, but I think I come by it honestly. You know, I had a, a rather challenging childhood. As most of you know, my biological father died of a heart attack when I was just four years old. <laughs> it was kind of my own personal emotional earthquake. And just like with a real one, the very foundation of my little world, everything I thought I could count on as a little boy suddenly was turned upside down and shaken to the core. And somewhere deep inside that little boy that was me, at that moment I decided that nothing is really ever totally safe or totally secure. It just turned my fundamental sense of confidence in the world upside down. So perhaps it wasn't such a surprise that even though my mom remarried an amazing, wonderful man who adopted me and my sister and has been my blessing of a father my entire life ever to this very day, some traumas just never go away. And I certainly had a rocky beginning when it came to fitting in and being successful at school. I quit my first preschool because I was being bullied by a bunch of boys and then a bunch of girls who wouldn't let me play on the slides or the jungle gym. And then I was kicked out of Carl Thorpe Summer School, really, because I was caught, you know, writing on my desk. They're kind of sticky about those things over at Carl Thorpe. <laughs> so then I enrolled in Franklin Elementary School, public school. And my parents were promptly informed by my teacher that I failed nap. <clears throat> because I couldn't even sit still, let alone actually lie down for any length of time without talking. <clears throat> then in kindergarten, my teacher was so frustrated and obviously not emotionally equipped to handle kids like me, 
that she put scotch tape over my mouth. <clears throat> but fortunately, that scotch tape incident really didn't traumatize me or bother me at all, and I forgot all about it totally a few days later. <clears throat> okay, so it's 60 years later, and it's still as fresh in my mind as the day that she put that scotch tape over my mouth. <clears throat> and I finally had this revelation that I figured I probably became a rabbi just so I could stand up here and in front of thousands of people and just keep talking. <laughs> well, let's see, bullying, <clears throat> kicked out of school, failing nap, scotch tape on my mouth. <sighs> then I got to first grade. <laughs> Still at Franklin Elementary, from kindergarten through sixth grade. And unfortunately for me at that time, the school seemed to have an awful lot of rules. You know, like no running in the halls and no talking unless you were on the playground and students weren't allowed to be tardy, can you imagine? If you violated any one of those or it seemed like a million other rules at Franklin, there were monitors roaming the halls, monitors in the bathrooms and the playground. They would give you these dreaded monitor slips if they caught you doing something wrong. And then you had to present that to your teacher. And if you got more than one in a day, you got sent to the principal's office. Okay, so since this is really my final High Holy Days as senior rabbi of KI, I decided, what the heck, it's time to come clean. <laughs> so here is the real high point of my elementary school career. It's the fact that I, little Stevie Rubin, held the Franklin Elementary School record for amassing the most monitor slips ever given in one day. <clears throat> it was 23. <clears throat> I was so infamous that by second grade, when my little sister Debbie was born and someone came running into my classroom to call me to the principal's office where my dad was waiting to tell me the good news, everybody in the class started cracking up and pointing and hooting, refused to believe that it was anything other than, oh, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Rubin, Stevie Wonder. He must have just gotten another monitor slip and been sent to the principal's office. Look, I, I can't really blame them. I was the kind of kid who every single year, every single teacher magically knew my name by the end of the very first day of school. <laughs> Always. Oh, and my report cards? I don't want to talk about them. Actually, I do want to talk about my report cards because I remember them all to this day. Every single year, every single teacher, it seemed, whether mid-year or end of the year, it didn't matter, they would all write the same words on my report card. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Rubin, who are sitting right here, by the way, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Rubin, I believe that Stevie has a lot of potential. <laughs> but he's so easily distracted that so far he's clearly an underachiever. <clears throat> I recall once seeing a Peanuts cartoon where Charlie Brown was talking to Snoopy and quietly saying, there are few burdens in life more terrifying than that of a great potential. Well, that was me for most of my life, at least my student life, and my student life was really a long time, as I mentioned last night. <coughs> After junior high and high school, then there was four years of college for the BAs and five years of graduate school to get my master's in Hebrew letters and be ordained as a rabbi in Jerusalem, Los Angeles, and New York, and then a year and a half to get another master's in education from USC, and then internship 
at the University of Georgia uh, to get certification in aging and gerontology, and then two more years to get a PhD in religion. Um, I, I started thinking about all those degrees. Me, with all those degrees, you know, I was never that good of a student. In fact, uh, having so many degrees, I remember when I was first dating Didi, she said, I think you're overqualified to be my husband. <laughs> but I was really never that great a student. I always just got by with grades that were good enough. You know, not so many A's, not so many C's, God forbid a D, but enough B's to end high school with a solid B average, which at the time, thank goodness, was good enough to get into a UC campus. And I just kept doing good enough to move on to the next level, and then another goal, and then do enough, good enough, to move to the next level, and on and on and on and on. Now, don't get me wrong, there were lots of times that I loved going to school, just not for the school part. Back in junior high at Lincoln, junior high school, in Santa Monica, even though I was never much of an athlete, I figured out that there was one thing in track that I was actually pretty good at, and I even got a letter for it. <laughs> Isn't that cute, Lincoln? Imagine I still have it. I was a high jumper, believe it or not, at Lincoln. And then in 10th grade, I entered Samuel High, and although the academic part wasn't so hot, I loved drumming. So I was drumming in the marching band. I was actually recruited to play drums in their award-winning 20-piece jazz band. So at the tender age of 16, I had the privilege and great joy of actually playing drums with the Samohai Serenaders in the Hollywood Bowl. I mean, how cool is that at 16? And then uh, the very next day, my entire family moved away from Santa Monica up to Sacramento because my dad got a promotion working for the State Division of Highways, became responsible for land acquisition for all the freeways of Northern California. And there I was, suddenly taken away from everything I knew, from everyone, whatever friends I had, and plopped down into C.K. McClatchy High School in Sacramento for 11th and 12th grade. Well, once again, loving school, not so much. But playing drums in their marching band, that was great. Becoming the student conductor of the orchestra, and oh yes, having the good fortune of meeting a, an amazing percussion mentor who decided at 16 that I was good enough to become a professional musician and invited me to become percussionist and then eventually principal percussionist of the Sacramento Symphony Orchestra. I wouldn't have had that opportunity here. So, wow. High school was amazing, just not because of school. <laughs> it was because of all the music I ended up performing nearly every weekend with all these older professional musicians and then playing in the symphony and then continuing right through college, forming my own group at the time called Patches of Morning Fog and writing music with my, <laughs> my best friend, Danny. But school itself, hmm. You know, my grades in Sacramento were, as they always had been, just good enough. Good enough to get through high school. In fact, good enough to continue throughout my entire academic career. Good enough was the theme that simply continued throughout my entire academic career and really throughout my professional career as well. So as I grew into an adult and became a parent and a teacher and sometimes even a mentor to others, I realized one of the greatest lessons I've learned from the successes of my own life is this. Most of the time, good enough really is. Most of the time, good enough really is. And that's why I'm sharing all of this wonderful personal information with all of you in the first place. 
Even though I was never a really good student, evidently was consistently an underachiever, at least in the eyes of my teachers, somehow I figured out how at every turn, with every challenge, in every situation in which I found myself in school and ultimately in life itself, to do and to be good enough. When my uh, parenting books first came out several years ago, I was doing some traveling and, and speaking to lecturing to parents. And I would often begin those conversations by pointing to myself and telling every group of parents to whom I spoke, this is what a hyperactive kid looks like when he grows up. <laughs> Not perfect, but good enough. I would usually remind them that the famous educator and psychologist Bruno Bettelheim's last book before he died was simply called A Good Enough Parent. Not a perfect parent, it's a good enough parent. For Bettelheim and for me, and it ought to be, I think, for each and every one of you as well, good enough is just that good enough. It's so foolish to burden ourselves or our kids with expectations of being perfect or acting perfect or achieving everything or never missing a shot or making every goal or winning every trophy or being the best at everything or any number of a hundred different totally unrealistic expectations we so easily slip into for ourselves, our spouses, our partners, our children, our parents, our siblings, our teachers, our friends, and yes, even our clergy. Someone once told me that the real definition of a rabbi is a finite person trying to meet infinite needs. They must have known what it's like. It's not going to happen. Not for any of us. I have some dear friends with a son who, as he was growing up, had some rather serious ADD-type hyperactive, can't-sit-still-for-anything-unfortunate experiences throughout his school career. You know, bouncing from one school to another, pulling their hair out, trying to find the right match, and a nurturing environment that doesn't continually label him a problem in there, and constantly bring his self-esteem lower and lower, been there too. They have told me over and over throughout the years that one of the things that has kept them sane and given them faith in the future throughout this child-raising challenge is knowing how much their son is just like me. <laughs> and if I could end up with what is clearly a wonderful life, an amazing, loving, fairy tale marriage, a career that's brought me endless joy and success and profound fulfillment, then they said there's hope for their son as well. And that really is the point of this sermon, that most of the time, good enough really is. Because no one has a stress-free life. No one gets out of this world without loss, without pain, without sorrow, without failing at one goal or another, without experiencing sickness and pain and death of loved ones. No one. No one. Anais Nin once wrote, life shrinks or expands in proportion to one's courage. And for the Jewish people, this is our season of courage. We take these holiest days of the year and we set them aside to have the courage to examine our past actions and behavior, our failures and our potential for all of our dreams that have not yet been brought to fruition in our lives to still come true one way or another. We, we stop and we think about all that we do and say every year that somehow validates the idea that each and every one of us is an underachiever in some way, with some relationships, in some setting, work or school or family, 
because that really does describe every single one of us. We are all underachievers in some ways. So what? So what? The quality of our lives is not a function of getting an A on the test or coming in first in the award ceremony, certainly not in having the fastest car or the biggest house or the coolest stuff, even though there's nothing wrong with having a fast car, I have one, or a big house or cool stuff. And I've probably said this more than a hundred times over the years, but it's a special high holy day, so I'm going to keep saying things I've already said anyway, that most of the time, the most important things in life aren't things at all. Really, ever. Period. We all know the most important things in life are the people in our lives. Everyone's heard the phrase that we make a living by what we make, but we make a life by what we give. And not just in tzedakah and financial giving to help raise the fallen or heal the sick or liberate those who are still enslaved, all of which, of course, indeed do need our financial support, as obviously does your own synagogue on an ongoing basis to thrive and survive into the future. But it's not that. Our most important giving really are the offerings of the heart. What our tradition calls gemilut chasadim, acts of loving kindness. Loving and kindness. Loving and kindness. Both are necessary. Both are fundamental to human happiness. Both are the irreplaceable foundation of any world in which you and I would want to live. Loving someone and being kind. The Dalai Lama once said, be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, you can never do a kindness too soon, for you never know how soon it will be too late. And even the Talmud says that the greatest mitzvah of all is simply kindness. So this year I encourage all of you to treat one another, especially the ones you love, your spouse, your partner, your children, your parents, your siblings, not only with love, but perhaps even more importantly, with kindness. Kindness and love means letting others be themselves, celebrating our differences, embracing the amazing reality that our world is populated by over 7 billion unique, individual, one-of-a-kind human beings, each with their own dreams, each with their own goals, with their own fears, with their own insecurities, and with their own deep and profound needs to be appreciated and feel valued by another, to be loved. There's a famous midrash in which God wants to reward King Solomon for all his faithfulness and all his wisdom. And so he says to Solomon, what quality do you desire more than any other? And it'll be yours. So in the Midrash, King Solomon, the wisest of men, according to Jewish tradition, thinks for a moment and then says to God two words in Hebrew, Lev Shomea, a listening heart. A listening heart. That is my prayer, my gift for each of you this year. Lev Shomea, a listening heart. It means give yourself and everyone you love a break this year. I look at my life and the remarkable gift that it has been so far, and I know I've experienced pain and sorrow and the death of loved ones and the difficulty of learning to let go of disappointment after disappointment, and yet all of it really is just a part of this beautiful life of mine. Some of you know that I interviewed for two different 
separate synagogues that turned me down to be their rabbi before KI opened its doors and heart to Didi and Gable and me 28 years ago and changed our lives forever. And I was married once before and divorced, having failed in my first marriage. I remember thinking some rabbi, some role model for others. And then I met and fell in love with Didi and Gable and my life was changed forever. I was rejected by the first college I applied to, Santa Cruz, in case you're wondering, and felt like a loser when my second choice university, which was UC Davis at the time, accepted me instead. And then through UC Davis, I was sent to study in Jerusalem for my junior year, and the Judaic studies I experienced there changed my life and the direction of my career forever, led me directly into the rabbinate and these past 28 years here with all of you as the most fulfilling and remarkable years of my life. So I suppose there are really two themes ultimately in this sermon because these are the two most important values I cherish and ideas I have always done my best to teach in everything I do and in all the sermons that I give. First, the success of our lives is never dependent on being the best or always winning or never making mistakes. It's never about falling down, it's obvious. We all do that all the time. It's always about simply getting up again and dusting yourself off and accepting every experience as a gift to be learned from and remembering that most of the time, good enough really is. And secondly, life is filled with blessings and curses but the kicker is you can't usually tell which is which, the blessing or the curse. Our job is to grow our souls deeper and deeper each year. With every experience we share, with every loss, with every pain, with every joy, with every sorrow, with every celebration, with every tear, every one of them is simply part of the building blocks of our lives that we stand upon to reach the next level. And who we are is the result of every experience, the good and the bad, the blessings and the curses that we've ever had. What matters most is obviously never the circumstances or experiences of our lives alone, but the meaning we choose to put and attach to those experiences because human beings are above all else meaning makers. That's what sets us apart from every other creature on earth and makes us literally but lower than the angels. We have the opportunity with every experience, to choose what it means. What it means to me. And to turn every curse into a blessing. So that's the real challenge for this year ahead. It's to fill every day with gratitude. To fill every day with loving. To fill every day with kindness and enough meaning to remind you each day that what you say matters. And what you do matters and who you are matters most of all. That is in each of our hands. This day, and the next this day, and every day. And so once again, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for the privilege all these years of being your rabbi.